0: There was a woman who was catching a bus one time. She had her baby with her. And uh, she got on the bus and paid the bus driver. And the bus driver said the rudest thing. Looked at her baby and he said, that is the ugliest baby I think I've ever seen. And she was so mad. I mean, she didn't know what... I, she's just speechless, just I can't believe that, so she goes back and she sits down by this guy and she says, You'll never believe what that bus driver said I'm so angry, he is so rude and, and she and the guy sitting next to her said, Well, if you want to go say something to him, I'll hold your dog for you." <laughs> There are some ugly babies, but these two are not ugly babies. These are cute. These are cute babies. But we do, we care about how we look. We care about the image that other people have of us. We care about the perceptions of others. Um, There was a campaign, uh, an ad campaign, Image is Everything, somewhere back in the landfill that is 1980s pop culture. You will find the Canon cameras, Image is Everything. Campaign. I mean, it fit great because it was a camera camera company back when cameras used film and everything. Um, so, image is everything. And if, you, if you're tracking with me on that, if you were aware back during that decade, um, you'll remember that it was Andre Agassi who was the spokesman, the professional tennis player. No, not the, the, the version Andre, kind of more recent, a little plumper with a bald head and a beard, but the Bon Jovi hair, Andre Agassi, the guy who wore the wild get-ups to play tennis, so wild that women... Wimbledon wouldn't even let him wear, you know, like, his regular clothes to play tennis in and everything like that. It was the Image is Everything campaign, and I guess it was very successful because, boy, it was, it was on for quite a while. Um, but we know, um, that may work for, for a camera company, but we know there is, that image isn't everything. I mean, there are, there are things below the surface that matter and matter a great deal. Um, character matters. Content matters. Um, so image is not, is not everything. I mean, you can, you can take a beautiful Ferrari, you know, and, and lift the engine out, and I guess you could drop a Prius motor under the hood, but it's not a Ferrari if it's got a Prius motor under the hood. It may, it may look Ferrari-ish, right? But it's not... It's not a Ferrari. What's under the hood matters. What, In terms of, of content, um, there, there's great worth there. But in Acts chapter 8, we meet a guy, Simon the sorcerer. There were a lot of Simons in the New Testament. So the Bible is always going to kind of identify them. This is Simon the leper, or this is Simon Cephas the apostle, or this is Simon the sorcerer. So this is Simon the sorcerer. Um, he was really into Image. He was really into his personal branding, into, um, into people really buying into all the hype about him. He was an, uh, an image-driven guy, and he was quite a big shot because he was, he was very successful as a magician, as a sorcerer. He made a lot of money, and he carried a lot of influence with people back in that day um, in the area that he lived, which was Samaria. Then Jesus came along, okay? Um, at least the message of Jesus. And when Jesus crashed into Samaria, a revival broke out. I mean, everybody was crowding around this evangelist named Philip to hear about Jesus. Um, people from the lowest to the highest in social terms, um, from the movers and shakers to the, to the, to the peasants, people were, people were coming to faith in Jesus, People were, were giving their lives to Jesus. People were making changes um, because of the message about Jesus. And it was cool. I mean, there was a great vibe in Samaria as this revival was breaking out. Acts chapter 8, verse 8 says that there was great joy in the city. So this, this is a happy thing. This is a happy thing. And before we talk more about who Simon was, let's just talk a little more about what's going on in Acts 8 because there is a very big, important point in Acts chapter 8. Um, Samaria is just, it's not another place. It it, it is very significant that people are being reached there. Very significant. Um, And you've probably heard a little bit of history of, of tension uh, that existed between Jews and Samaritans. Well, I'll just fill that out a little bit more. For generations, there had been, you know, either hostilities or, or, or at a minimum segregation between the Jewish peoples and the Samaritan people, right? They lived right by each other, but, but segregation. Well, now, through Jesus, literally generations of segregation are coming to an end. Um. Multitudes of Samaritans are believing on the name of Jesus, Jewish rabbi, incidentally. They're believing on the name of this Jewish rabbi. They're giving their lives to Jewish rabbi. They're being united into the family of God for the first time, you know, in generations and generations. They're coming together into the same family, spiritually speaking, as the Jews. This is historic. This is a really, really big deal um, in Samaria. And so Acts 8 is talking about this this, this kind of epic, historic, monumental moment um, in the history of the church. Um, along with the message that Philip is preaching, there are miracles. Um, there are sick people being healed. They're, they're, the lame are walking. Demons are being cast out. Um, just amazing, amazing things are going on. So, so, you know, the Samaritan nightly news, the lead story is this revival. Um, this this revival that's happening where Jesus is preached is, is capturing everyone, young and old's imagination. And it is the talk of the town. You know, from the PTA to the park, from the supermarket to the city square, it is, it's what is on everyone's lips, it's the conversation, it's the buzz that's going on around Samaria, and there's a lot of joy connected with it, so so it's really a beautiful thing. Even a guy who is a, essentially a local celebrity, uh, like Simon the Sorcerer, has been touched, and he has responded to the message. Well, Who was this guy? Well, let's let the Bible introduce him. In Acts 8, 9 to 11, the New Living Translation introduces him like this. A man named Simon, who had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So like his business card is, you know, I'm a great guy. Um, Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him. Because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. So really, I mean, kind of looking at this another way: before the crowds were gathering around Philip to hear about Jesus, these crowds had been gathering around Simon to watch his sorcery, to watch his magic. Um, He was the (laughs) he was the David Copperfield of Samaria. This guy was big time. He wasn't like. um, like the kind of magician you would hire for your five-year-old's birthday party who's pulling rabbits out of a hat. I mean, this guy had some amazing tricks that he was able to perform, and people believed he was real. I mean, his powers were real. They weren't illusions. They believed that, right? And so he got these nicknames, and he did nothing to dissuade them from thinking he was the great one. So he's managing his image, and he's been able to, to turn his brand into something very lucrative, flush with cash, um, hitting it off with the ladies, uh, celebrity, celebrity status attained. He has um, everything he has ever wanted, or so he thought, until he met Jesus. And Jesus, this message about Jesus made him think about his life and he perceived that there was something missing in his life. And he knew tricks. I mean, he knew the, the miracles that were happening, like as Philip preaches the message. He knew these were not fake. He knew these were genuine miracles from God. He knew the real thing when he saw it. And, and so did everybody else. I mean, I mean, you don't have a guy who's been paralyzed for years suddenly get up and walk and fake that. There was stuff happening that he and everybody else knew was was real. And so the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. Began following Philip wherever he went. He was amazed by the signs and the great miracles that Philip performed. So he believed. He was immersed in the name of Jesus. Um, He was smitten with the same with the same Christ that so many Samaritans were were accepting were following with such enthusiasm. And he was, it's interesting, as you go through the book of Acts, he was was the first magician that we find converted in the book of Acts, but he was not the last. I mean, as as this message spreads around, the the community, the the magical community, the sorcerer community, the Hogwarts community of Samaria, um, they are responding. In fact, we find out later, um, I think it's in chapter 19, when the gospel spreads up into Ephesus, this very important city in in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, this very important city. As the gospel spreads there, it it influences this community. And so other members of his guild um, follow Jesus as well. The Bible talks about this kind of revival in Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts, verses 17 to 20. A solemn fear descended on the city. The name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely, and I love this phrase, spread widely and with powerful effect. I mean, stuff was happening. Um, people were not just responding um, impulsively to the gospel, but they were making choices that were pretty wild. I mean, pretty pretty committed kind of choices, like like the the, the magical community there, or or the community of of, of sorcerers in, in Ephesus, bringing valuable. Um, Valuable kinds of items that they had, including these incantation books, and burning them—that was that was, it was a real deal. I mean, there, were, there was amazing stuff. But but while Simon was the first magician converted, he wasn't the last. But he probably was the first to to abandon his faith. To abandon his faith. Simon the sorcerer—he he found something in Jesus that he wanted. But in the end, it wasn't enough to give Jesus his whole heart. It wasn't enough for him to surrender everything to Jesus. And as Luke records this story in the book of Acts for us about Simon the sorcerer, I hear echoes of another story Luke recorded in his gospel. It's a story that is told by Jesus, one of the parables I mean, you remember the parable of the, of the different kinds of soils that Jesus told? Um, it's it's that story, you know, you've got a farmer that goes out and is going to plant. And so he, he pulls out these 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 handfuls of seeds out of his seed bag, and he just tosses them, and, and almost kind of haphazardly. And so some of the seed falls on this really good, fertile soil that's been tilled up, and, and it it sprouts up, and, and and over time it grows roots, and it matures, and it produces fruit. But some of the seed falls on these other, kinds of soil that aren't quite as fertile, um, like there is seed that falls on the path um, where it's hard, where, where it's rigid, where, where, where the roots can't go down into the soil, and there is a term for seed that falls on the path. It is bird food. I mean, it's just sitting there for the birds to come and eat it. That's what happens to seed that falls on hard soil. Other seed falls, you know, in the in the in the thorny soil where there's thorns and weeds, and and, and it, it shoots up, but it can't. It can't get the nourishment it needs from the soil because it is having to fight it out with for sunlight and fight it out for the nourishment from the soil with all these weeds and all these thorns. So, so it's choked out and it dies. Um, and so Jesus tells a story, and really, he's not he's not giving a lesson on agriculture, right? For the for the um, for the local you know FFA club or something. He he is he's t- he's talking about hearts. And Jesus is talking about how different hearts respond in different ways to to the message. Um, Some respond with great eagerness and and great joy, and they shoot up in their faith, but there's no lasting power. The roots don't go down. Um, For some, Jesus will bring real life change. And so Jesus says in Luke 8 verse 15, the seed on good soil stands for a noble and good heart. It's those who hear the word, they retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Well, Simon's response to the teaching of Philip in Acts chapter 8: great joy, great enthusiasm, accepts the gospel, even as baptized in the name of Jesus. But then it looks a little bit like what Jesus says in Luke 8:14 about a particular kind of soil. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked, choked by life's worries, in his case, by riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. Simon believes, Simon responds to the message, but faith is choked in his heart, choked out by his first love, his love of Simon his love of self. So what happened? What caused this to happen? What what went on there? And, and, and to get into Simon's heart, you need to understand a little more what was going on In all of Samaria So Philip is preaching this message Simon responds, many others are responding It is incredible It is is historic God is welcoming With open arms Even the Samaritans God is forming this family Of very diverse people Through the power of the name Of Jesus And so back in Jerusalem, headquarters if you will We have the apostles there We have the church leaders And the church leaders recognize this. They're like, this is amazing. This is new. We need to show that this is something that we accept, that we endorse, that we are welcoming. So Peter and John are sent. Philip was not an apostle, all right? He was preaching. He was doing miracles, but he wasn't an apostle. So we are going to send the secretary of state and the secretary of defense or what? I mean, you, you get what I'm saying. We're going to send, we're going to send apostles to Samaria And we're going to put the stamp of approval on this revival that's broken out in Samaria. So off go Peter and John. When Peter and John get up there, they want to not only say welcome, they not only want to give hugs to these new Samaritans, brothers and sisters in Christ, they want to show it. And they want to show that it's not just them, it is the Holy Spirit of God who is welcoming these people into the kingdom. So, they had this ability, the apostles did, that when they laid hands on people, they could pass on the ability to perform miracles through the Holy Spirit, okay? They could could take this miraculous ability, they could give this ability to others. And so, this is something they're going to do with Samaritans to show the Holy Spirit is blessing what's going on in Samaria. So, so, so that's, that's what they, they start doing up there. Um, and they send this powerful message that, number one, Samaritans are welcome in the church. Um, number two, they're not being welcomed as second-class citizens. They're being welcomed as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's the message they're giving in Samaria. And that's the message they're trying to give. That's not the message that Simon heard. The message that Simon heard was, wow, this could be great for my business. All right? He's thinking, "Wait wait a second. These two guys from Jerusalem are not only able to do miracles, they're able to pass on the ability to do miracles. This could be great for me. This could be great for my Simon the Sorcerer brand. I mean, if I had this power... If I had the power to pass on the ability to do miracles, I could charge anything I wanted all over the world. If you thought Simon the sorcerer was the great one before, we're going to have to come up with a whole new logo. I mean, like Super Simon. I mean, put an S on his shirt and a red cape or something. I mean, this is going to be bigger and better than ever. And you, it, you can almost hear a choking sound here as his faith struggles for oxygen. When Simon saw, this is uh, verses 18 to 19, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. "'Let me have this power,' he exclaimed." So that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Say hello to the old Simon. This is not Simon 2.0, Christian Simon. This is Simon 1.0, image addict, great power Simon. What started as a genuine conversion experience, and I have to go with the text here. The text says he believed. Right? I believe it was genuine the way he responded to the gospel in the beginning. What the text says was a genuine conversion experience has now evolved into a potential booster rocket for his career. Right? I mean, traveling the world over, charging to pass on miraculous powers, the sky's the limit, he's thinking. So Simon decides to make a business proposition, goes up to the apostles and basically says, all right, how much? Let's do a deal here. I mean, I have a lot of money. And obviously, this, I mean, let's think nobly here. I mean, this new, brand new Christian movement could use some financial backing. Um, so, what's it going to take? I mean, everybody has their price. What's it going to take for me to purchase this power from you guys? Wow. You can, you can imagine the kind of reply he got. And here it goes. In Acts 20-23, to Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking that God's gift can be bought. You have no part in this. Your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness. Pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy, and you are held captive by sin. Wow, that's harsh. I mean, Peter is very harsh there. And I could see some people maybe overhearing Peter and the rebuke that he gave to Simon, thinking... Tap the brakes a little bit, man. I mean, this guy's a brand-new convert. Don't expect him to be the most mature guy in the world. And also, think about the possibilities of having a guy who is a local celebrity, who everybody knows, who's giving his life to Jesus. Think about how this could be like a marketing boon for the Christian church in Samaria. So, Peter, why why don't you settle down a little bit? But Peter said what he needed to say um, he said better, he said, he said what Simon really needed to hear. He spoke truth into in Simon's life. Um, underneath that image that Simon had, had perfected of a superstar, a celebrity, there was a heart that was very, very sick. And Simon's theory here, obviously, I mean, I think I'm stating the obvious, Simon's theory that God's blessing, that God's gift can be bought with money, well, it's contradictory to the grace of God. It, it, it's opposed to the mercy of God. Um, it, is, it, is in, it is in opposition to the new relationship that God wants to have with us, trying to purchase the gift of God. It, 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 is, it is not in line with the kind of partnership that God wants to establish with us. We talked about this last week in the Jonah, in the Jonah um, sermon. God wants to be partners with us. He just doesn't want to be business partners with us. He doesn't want to sell you a Holy Spirit franchise. And that's what Simon wanted to buy here. He wanted, let's franchise this, man. I'll start up a branch here in Samaria. This would be great. And so he was really off, and he needed to hear what Peter had to say. Peter realized with this kind of sick heart that Simon had, Simon didn't need spiritual baby aspirin. (laughs) Simon needed like a spiritual defibrillator to get that thing going. There just wasn't anything going on in there. And so Peter speaks truth to him. And I think all of us really face um, this temptation to accept something lesser than the real thing Jesus has for us, to to accept a a version of Christianity that's more like a veneer, more like a facade, it's a temptation to, to look for the approval of others. If others think I'm a Christian person, if, if they think, if they perceive that I'm a good Christian man, that's, that's good enough. I mean, there, there's that temptation, I think, if we're real honest. And especially in North Dallas, in a world where we struggle with appearances so much, I want people to think I'm a Christian, right? And, and I'll kind of work on the other thing as I go or whatever. But to really get, to get real about it, to be honest about the sickness that's in my heart, that, that's That's tough. Jesus, during his ministry, I mean, we've talked about this a few times. Matthew 23 is a whole chapter where Jesus, it's basically the angriest rant of Jesus. It is a long rant. He is having, um, well, it's not a discussion. I mean, it's a rant. He's tearing into the Pharisees. He's tearing into this religious group who were very concerned with outward appearances. And so Jesus tells them in Matthew 23, verse 28, outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus wants more than the appearance of spirituality. A book came out last year called Veneer. The book was written by two guys, Timothy Willard and Jason Losey. They describe it like this. Embarrassed by the scars of our humanity, we try to hide our brokenness. We use a veneer to cover ourselves, hoping others will perceive us as having greater worth, as being more beautiful and perfect than we feel inside. For Peter Surface-level spirituality wasn't enough. For Jesus, it certainly wasn't enough. God wants to go deeper. Amen? So let's talk about this. This is on your outline, and we're going to go through this really fast. So if you're one of these people who needs to have papers filled in, you're going to need to be ready to go here. And we're going to talk about image-driven people, which, honestly, a lot of us struggle with this, okay? Just tell it like it is this morning. A lot of us struggle with this. Image-driven people Are, and we see this in Simon, they are controlled by the external, casual about the internal. Image is everything. I mean, whether you are you're a CEO or or an entrepreneur or not, we're all about our own branding. I mean, we are. And the image-driven person is, is very much controlled by what others think, what others say, by perception, and tends to neglect deeper things, spirit things, right? As Peter says to Simon in verse 20, your heart is not right. All right. Second thing here, image-driven people are calloused to their spiritual poverty, callous to their spiritual poverty. Peter puts it this way, you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Uh, image-driven people don't understand the depth of their brokenness. And and I'm speaking to all of us guys. I mean we are so broken. And when we get a notion of just how broken we are I mean and, and we look at the cross, we look at the cost that God had to pay to make things right. I mean it puts us in a place of great humility and hopefully a place of of confession and admission about our brokenness. We have confidence in the cross. We don't have confidence in ourselves. So, image-driven people can be kind of callous to their spiritual poverty, kind of not sensitive to that. Finally, they can be captives of their own desires and not concerned about God's. I mean, Simon is right off the bat thinking of the implications of this. Wow, I could really use this power, you know, in, in my profession. Um, it's cool that it's saving lives and transforming lives, but this could also have some commercial value, too. A you know, spin off benefit of Holy Spirit power. So he's thinking about his agenda over God's agenda, obviously, in this story. So Peter says this chilling phrase You know, you, Simon, you have no part or share in this ministry. And so there's kind of captivity. Um, there's a slavery to keeping up appearances. It, it is a very tiring thing. It really is. So we're going to talk now about deep healing for the image addict. And I'm going to just share a couple of things and then kind of cash it out with a couple of with a story and a scripture. And the first thing here, this deep healing that image-driven people need, is first, um, an image-driven person encounters healing below the surface when they experience repentance. Repentance. Peter says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Repentance, repentance. It's it's taking that seed of faith. It's watering it. It's cultivating it. It's caring for it. it, it, Repentance isn't something you do one time when you accept Jesus. Repentance, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be repenting a lot. Because this is what repentance is. The second thing here. Repentance occurs when I agree with God about my sinfulness. Okay? God says, Gordon, you've got a problem with this. You've got a problem with this. You've got a problem with envy. You've got a problem with selfishness. And I fundamentally agree with God. So I agree with God about my sinfulness. I accept His forgiveness. I don't just wallow in negativity, and boy, I, I'm a really lousy person. I accept his forgiveness, and I adopt new habits. That's where a lot of people kind of leave off when they're repenting is, yeah, I, I, I feel really bad. God forgive me, but they also adopt new habits to lead them into harmony with his will for their lives. Um, Simon needed some new habits He really did. He needed some habits that would strengthen the transformation that Jesus had started. He needed some habits that would take Jesus below the surface of his life and allow Jesus to tinker with him at the deepest levels of his being. And this is not comfortable. You with me? This is surgery. This is letting Jesus loose in my attitudes in my personality, in my relationships, in the way I do business Monday through Friday, letting Jesus tinker with all of that. And that's what Simon wasn't willing to do. So his image management was preventing him from stamping from from preventing the Lord, rather, the Lord Jesus, from stamping his image on, on Simon's heart. I've got a friend in Rio, Paulo Nobri is his name. And this story always reminds me of Paulo Nobri. Paulo Nobri has has a family that's very committed to the Lord. His wife is committed to the Lord. His his four children are committed to the Lord. One of his sons, Bruno Nobri, is the worship leader at the Victory Church that we planted there in Rio. Paulo... um, He's a career radio guy, a little bit of a local celebrity, kind of like Simon, I guess. He, he's been on the radio forever. He has a show on Monday through Friday for an hour every day on one of the radio stations. It's a variety show, there's some music, there's opinions, all this kind of stuff. And he has to, he's not only the voice of the program... Uh, the personality, the talent on the program. He is also um, kind of the everything of the program. I mean, he, he has to get all of the sponsors, he has to sell all of the advertising so that he can pay the radio station, so that he can pay himself, so that he can buy the stuff his family needs. So there's a lot of pressure on Paulo Nobre. Um Well, I rejoiced with his wife and with his kids six years ago when Paulo put on Christ, um, said, I believe on the name of Jesus, and it was a long process. We had been waiting forever for this, and so there was great excitement when Paulo finally expressed his faith in Jesus. But he immediately found himself in quite a dilemma because his main sponsor, right, um, the, the main backer of his program was this lady named Dona Fernanda. And Dona Fernanda, her business was operating a spiritist center. Since we're in North America, think palm reading, think fortune telling. Um, she, um, she would, you know, people believed, operate in, in, with dark spirit forces and make things happen. So folks would pay her and she would put a curse on their enemy. Um, they would pay her, and she would uh, she would put a love spell on a boy or girl that they wanted to fall in love with them she She could make sick people get better, she could help you make money that 's what she did and so Paulo, with her as his major sponsor for years and years. He had sold her wares on his radio program. He had interviewed her. He had interviewed clients of hers who had been helped by her magic. He sold it. And and his listening audience who hung on his every word, they responded, and her business was booming. So when he comes to Christ, all of a sudden, there's a decision to be made. As a Christ follower... He didn't feel like he could continue to sell her dark magic to his audience. That's good that he felt that way. He was right. He also didn't feel like he could terminate his business relationship with Dona Fernanda and continue to keep his program on the air. And so for, se- for several years, he did Nothing which essentially meant he was doing something. It just wasn't what the Lord wanted him to do. And so he continued this business relationship. And I re- a couple of years ago, I shared the same story with you, and it was on a Sunday night, and we just stopped in the middle of the sermon, and we prayed for Paulo Nobre. We prayed that this, that this man who Jesus was calling would not only say, I believe, but would plant his roots in Jesus and take the risk he needed to take to really follow Jesus. And I don't know if you remember that. It was on a Sunday night. We prayed for Paulo Nobre and, and and I get as I'm preparing the sermon this week, I get an email from Paulo's son, the worship leader there in Rio, uh, Rio Bruno. And Bruno writes me and he says, "You're never going to believe what happened to my dad. He finally broke ties with Dona Fernanda." So if you were here that night, your prayers were answered. He said he finally broke ties with Dona Fernanda. He lost his radio program, couldn't pay the bills. Um, but, he, but then he, said, he quickly said, but our family is doing better than ever. My dad is doing better than ever. And he said, actually, the biggest radio station in Brazil, Radio Globo, is now offering my dad a job. So it's amazing what's happened in my dad's life. He's at church every Sunday praising God um, with the saints there at the Victory Church. And so I'm thrilled about that. But I'm also reminded those two or three years that Paulo went through where he had sort of given his life to Jesus, he was very sad. I mean, he avoided, he avoided me like the plague. He avoided church services like the plague. He he couldn't look us in the eyes because, I mean, he knew what he needed to do, and he was a sad man. He was sad because there was Jesus and there was career, and he wasn't able to choose between his career and his confession. i got news for you. In, in, a, in a society, in a culture that is completely addicted to happiness, where being happy is like the number one goal people have, sorrow really gets, gets undervalued, I think. Sorrow can be a beautifully powerful tool in the hands of God. It can lead to some bad places, right? But it can lead to some, some redemptive places, too. And so when Peter speaks these difficult words into the life of this new convert, you need to repent of this wickedness. You need to deal with this. Simon wasn't happy about that. When Paul was writing to this church in Corinth, Paul talks to them about some words he spoke to them that made them sad. And Paul shares something about the power, power of sadness. 2 Corinthians 7, 9-11. to Paul writes this I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And leaves no regret. But there's another kind of sorrow, right? Worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. You know, we talked about how an image-driven heart is calloused sorrow can break off the calluses all of a sudden their their consciences are sensitive all of a sudden they're responsive to god in new and fresh ways because of that sorrow love that love that so luke chapter 8 or or acts chapter 8 written by luke it doesn't tell us how Simon the sorcerer's story ended. I mean, I'm glad now that I know that Paulo Nobri is is following Christ in a complete way. is, is really is really being honest with God. is re, really being uh, is really being true to, to his faith commitment. Um, I, I think this is my opinion. Certainly not inspired by God in any way. But I I, I think Simon responded. I think Simon repented. And maybe we get a taste of that then when he's like, hey, can you guys pray for me? That none of this bad stuff happens to me? I think Simon responded. But the real question that comes into my life, into your life, as we finish up this morning is this: Will I settle for a veneer of Christianity? Will I settle for a cultural version of Christianity? Will I, will it be enough for me? that others, like you guys, have the perception that I'm a good and godly person? Will I settle for that? Will you settle for that? Or will we say yes to Jesus? And yes to His plan to change us from the inside out. The sermon probably needs to end here, but there are a lot of places I'm tempted to go, and, and I won't go there. But we're going to have to create, I will say this, we're going to have to create a community here where people can be honest about what they struggle with. And I think we have some pockets of that here, I do. But we're going to need to be the kind of church when broken people, where they can talk openly about their brokenness, whether it's, it's a drug addiction, whether it's a same-sex attraction, whether it is something that happened in their past, the family they grew up, grew up in, whether it is prison time, whether it is whatever it is, where we can be open with each other and experience this kind of healing, the deep healing that comes when we believe on the name of Jesus and allow Jesus to operate. Let's pray. Let's, let's pray this morning as we finish out here. God, I, I don't know about that slogan, image is everything. But I know that if, if the image we're talking about is the image of Christ, well, it is for me. It is for us. We want His image, not just on the outside of our lives, clean up our speech a little bit, don't spit in public, whatever it is. We want to be really, really changed at the deepest levels. And Father, I pray for us that we can be a people who aren't afraid to confess our struggles. I pray for us that we can create an atmosphere, a climate here in this family at Preston Crest where not only our brothers and sisters can be open about what they struggle with, but folks from the outside can find a spiritual Home can find brothers and sisters in Christ with whom they can be totally honest and be supported and find healing and restoration and join us in this process of repentance, of becoming who you want us to be. And Father, none of us wants to be sad, none of us wants to be sorrowful. Um but God, I'm just gonna go out there and invite you this morning. If there's someone who needs that. That you would make that happen. Holy Spirit, you're not done working. And I pray, Spirit, that you will put a great discomfort in our hearts if that's what we need this morning. I pray that you will put a sorrow, that you'll put a heaviness on us if that's what we need. But I pray that it will be that kind of sorrow, that godly sorrow, that leads us to life, that leads us to repentance, that leads us to a sensitivity to you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the promise we have of salvation, of forgiveness through the name of Jesus. Thank you for letting us know through Jesus that our salvation, our righteousness doesn't depend on our ability to get everything right. That what you accomplished on the cross is enough. Work in our lives. Work at the deepest places. Work in the hidden places. And print on us the image of Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.